While this podcast will cover information about how to access therapy and other mental health services, it is not intended to be a substitute for said services. This podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. If you feel you are in need of mental health assistance, please seek out licensed professional care in your area. that type of therapy podcast. Welcome folks to Mental Health Quest, the therapist office and beyond. We're here to answer your questions about mental health, including how to access it, what it looks like, Why should you do it? All of the above. And so much more. So, hey, everybody. It's uh, your favorite hosts, Charlene McPherson and... Benjamin Tights. (laughs) We're back again. In your ear holes. (laughs) With information. (laughs) First, um, It's like Inception, but different. (laughs) We first wanted to, of course, support our listeners. You all have been amazing. We have plenty of downloads, more than we ever thought we would have uh, from many, many different countries, and that's amazing. Um, If you enjoy our content, please rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you're using so that others can find our amazing content. Also, uh, if you have any questions that you would like answered on the podcast, uh, about mental health, please send those questions over to us at mentalhealthquest1 at gmail.com. Uh, you can also find our podcast or send us messages on Twitter and Facebook at mental MHQ podcast. And that's at MHQ capital P podcast. And so we'll move on to this episode. Uh, in this episode, we're going to cover Benjamin. We're going to cover me. Oh, wow. I didn't know I needed that much time. Okay. No. Uh, Today, we will be covering levels of care, which is the different kind of venues and like places that you can receive mental health services that don't just mean like a therapist's office. So though, you know, our podcast is, you know, the therapist's office and beyond, we're not talking about the beyond the therapist's office different levels of care for mental health needs. And Mm -hmm. uh, obviously there are going to be differences in what it is in California where I live and in Maryland Mm -hmm. where Charlene lives and probably in any other state and or country where all of our listeners live. So take what I am saying with, you know, at least two grains of salt and one grain of pepper. Um, I can only talk about uh, my personal professional experiences in California. So that is what I will be talking about. Mostly, if Charlene knows of any similarities or differences in Maryland, she will, you know, throw that in there. And I encourage uh, all of our listeners, if you guys know of any differences in your localities, please let us know. I, I love to learn about this kind of thing. This is what I yeah. like to read about for funsies is I read about different levels of care in different states and countries. I'm a, yeah. I'm a real nerd, so. And I'll I'll pop in every once in a while. Um, I'm excited. I'm going to be learning this episode all about le- different levels of care. I did work uh, in an uh, started off working in an inpatient residential center with with kids, but that's pretty much as far as my my experience goes. Besides, like you know, hospitalizing somebody for a higher level of care, but. I'm excited to learn, Benjamin. Teach, teach us some stuff. <laughs> okay. All right. So I think the real question is, do we start from the lowest level to the highest level or highest level to the lowest level? I think it might be easier to start with lowest level because that would hopefully be where most people will be getting services. And a quick thing to you know note is when mental health professionals are trying to determine, you know, the level of care that is appropriate for their clients. Nowadays, almost every state in the United States and most countries, they strive to find the lowest 
level of care that is the safest for that client. Exactly. So they don't automatically jump straight for hospitalization or anything else. Uh, there is a lot of kind of determination like, okay, well, what is the least restrictive environment where they can still get the help that they need? And mm -hmm. so obviously the far bottom of this, you know, range is a therapist's office. You know, right. typical, or we've, we've kind of talked about already. Yeah. Typical private practice or group, you know, practice clinic, you know, therapists where you meet them once a week, once every other week, you know, that's uh, the lowest level of care. It is the most basic. It implies that you are able to survive and function on your own with minimal support, uh, mm -hmm. if not any support at all, because you are, you know, living on your own and you take yourself to the therapist's office. You arrange for your own transportation. You are paying for it, you know, whether through your insurance or you're paying your own copay or whatever. That is the lowest level of care. So now we need to kind of think about the different levels of care that kind of go further. And so in California, uh, and I think in other areas also, they use a type of assessment tool called the LOCUS, the Level of Care Utilization System. Um, and basically it kind of looks at the different levels of non-hospital based care, mm -hmm. uh, and try to figure out what based off of the placement criteria, such as risk of harm, functional status, you know, environment, treatment history, that kind of stuff, which would be the most appropriate for a specific individual. And there are different, uh, kind of subsections to these levels of care, which include care environment, clinical services, supportive services, and crisis stabilization and or preventative services. And these are what we talked about in all these different levels of cares. That's going to be the main differences in the type of environment, the type of services that are being provided to you. Most of these are for psychiatric and or addiction mental health services. So people with psychiatric health conditions and or addiction would be placed in these different levels of care. So the first level is called, at least in California, it's called recovery, maintenance, and health management. Mm -hmm. uh, and this refers to a, a level of care that provides treatment for those who are living either independently, so on their own, or with minimal support, such as with family, or maybe they you know, live in a group home or something like that. But either way, they are on their own. They're taking care of their own needs. They maybe just have someone there living with them who can potentially provide support, but is not necessarily you living in a treatment supportive environment. Mm -hmm. So you live independently, in which case the level of care itself is basically just a place where you go to to get your therapy or to get your medications or any other case management type services. Some places might provide transportation to their clinic. Other times the client is required to get there on their own. Though part of the supportive services that are provided could include bus tokens or a bus pass or you know discounted transportation services depending on where you live. But typically the care environment is just a clinic. You don't live there, it is in the community. It is a community-based treatment setting and treatment programming will probably be maybe up to two hours per month, but not less than one hour every three months. So these are, again, clinics. You are able to go to see a psychiatrist at least once a month and that's sufficient for your needs. Maybe on top of that, you might have therapy once a week or once every other week, or even again, once a month depending on, you know, how you and that specific therapist agree. But in most cases, this is the bare minimum to keep yourself afloat. I actually totally forgot. I did an internship for my master's degree at a place like this, and we called it a day program. Yeah. I don't know if, if that's, you know, where they would live independently or in a house in the community together, um, and they would all transport to the day program during the day. Um, and that's where you get therapy, group therapy, you know, stuff like that. Is that similar to what you're talking about? Um, that is similar to something that we will get to in a later level. Oh, okay. Because um, it depends on how long are they spending there at the day center. 
Um, okay. Are they there all day long? Are they there every day of the week? Or is it only part of the week? That is actually in California. There are day centers that do that kind of thing that are a little bit higher level because again, you're spending okay. more time there. You're right. able yeah. to engage. They were there all in, day. Yeah. So um, we'll get to that though, but typically those are considered intensive outpatient program or partial hospitalization program. So those are kind of like this, but a little bit more intense. Okay. In this kind of first level, the client is basically well-functioning and, you know, they just need some maintenance. You know, they, they don't really need a lot of therapy. They don't need a lot of medication management. They are doing very well. They are handling their own life. They go in once in a while to get to check with the psychiatrist. Hey, does the medication need to be adjusted? If at all, they go see a therapist, you know, once every so often, just for kind of like check-in maintenance services. There is a very low, if not negligible risk of harm for this client. They are able to function appropriately on their own, independently. They don't have comorbidity with another kind of illness or addiction. And they have a history of being engaged and successful in their recovery uh, in previous levels of care or mm -hmm. just in general. So then we get to something called low intensity community-based uh, services. So this is a type of setting that provides treatment for those who need ongoing treatment, but who might still live independently or with minimal support in the community. It's not quite intensive, but it's a little bit more than the previous one. So again, this is not a place where the people live, but more often than not, these kind of settings will contract with group homes or sober livings to provide services for their clients. So treatment programming could be about, you know, three hours per week, but not less than one hour every two weeks. Most often it's the three hours per week. So this could be like a clinic-based services um, that manages, you know, therapy and medication for addiction for people with uh, a sober living will go to this kind of setting. This is kind of like a little bit below uh, an intensive outpatient program, but not quite as intensive. Yeah. Would you include something? I don't know. I worked with kids a lot. This is, you know, where... Um, it kind of gets a little fuzzy, different between California and Maryland. I know we had intent, we have in-home services as well. We would have kids that would come to the, the, you know, the clinic, but it sounds like around this area of intensity is where you would have somebody come out to the home for a few hours a week, you know, work with the client, work with the parent, um, you know, they're living independently and everything like that. So in California, Home-based services are limited to um, like ABA programs for children on the autism mm. spectrum mm. and or like elderly people who uh, need like medical support. Unfortunately, in California that I'm aware of, and if someone out there knows better than me, I would love to learn. Uh, but so far as I'm aware, therapy and like psychotherapy-based services and even medications aren't really done in home, uh, at least not in a patient's private home. Yeah. If they live in a group home uh, that is managed by like a healthcare organization or a corporation or something like that, then um, they might have uh, the provider come to the group home to provide mm -hmm. services occasionally in addition to the clients going to the clinic. It was actually really neat because I was the therapist, right? Yeah. They would see a psychiatrist in office. And then if they needed extra support, we would apply for in-home services for someone else, like an actual like specialist mm -hmm. to go out and go to how homes and work with the parents, work with the kids, yeah. you know, on how to set a routine within the home. Because of course, like you and I both know, like our office is not real life, right? <laughs> so actually sending a therapist to the home to work with them on their regular everyday routine and, you know, help them kind of solidify those things. It was really, really a really good resource to have. Oh yeah, for sure. And they do that a lot uh, with children on the autism spectrum here in California, mm -hmm. uh, done through ABA programs, uh, applied mm -hmm. behavior analysis programs. With regards to mental health and or addiction, I think most cases that you would have a provider go to the house would be, let's say like 
the the client is living in a sober living and they might have maybe not a therapist maybe not a uh, a psychologist or psychiatrist go but a social worker or other mm-hmm. case manager who's like maybe an unlicensed therapist who's like an intern or something like that and is not handling full therapy services but is doing some therapy with like mainly case management might go to the sober living or to the group home to check in with them to provide field-based services nowadays actually uh, a lot of mental health programs uh, at least like overarching programs that do all sorts of things are starting to gonna do more field-based programs where they will Mm -hmm. go to the client's home and you know help them out in their daily life maybe go out with them you know into the community because let's say you have a client that struggles with with handling day-to-day living and that includes going to to the grocery store taking a bus and so you would have a therapist um, or a social worker go to their house and check in with them there and then take them out of the house and like support them as they're learning how to live in the community. So those might be like as part of transition programs from people who are coming down from high levels of care in order to kind of provide that support uh, and ease the transition. But nowadays, a lot of uh, full service partnership programs are kind of doing that. But typically mm-hmm. their clients live in like sober livings or group homes where mm-hmm. there's not a therapist on site, but the therapist might come every, every so often to check in with the clients. There's no clinical supervision on site. It's just kind of like you all live there together and we hope you're not killing each other. Um, <laughs> and the therapist is going to come check in with you guys every so often. And so that that's kind of like this, but also it goes on into the next level of care as well which is high intensity community-based services. So this is more intensive outpatient programming. These are, again, people live in the community, either independently or in some kind of like group home or, you know, sober living, but they don't require daily clinical supervision. They can live in the community to some degree, but then they come to the clinic three days a week uh, for about, two to three hours per day. And that's uh, in California, that is the basis for intensive outpatient programming, um, which is a separate kind of billing services that, you know, so when you're like applying for insurance coverage and stuff like that, insurances will cover these at different rates, but typically um, intensive outpatient programs are becoming more and more uh, accessible. Yeah, we have those here in Maryland too. Yeah, and in these kind of situations, you know, the psychiatric or medical staff are only available, you know, during, you know, working hours kind of thing. It's not mm-hmm. a 24 hour on call thing. There's not like skilled nursing care and medications are monitored, but not always administered. Sometimes depending on the IOP program, you might have a psychiatrist that will actually like give the meds on, on site, but most often than not, they just kind of check in and provide management but the clients are responsible for taking their own medications on their own. Uh, I actually had to refer a client um, last year to an IOP. And the way they, the way we kind of explained it was that uh, we definitely felt like they needed more support. Like you said, like Mm -hmm. more than just once a week therapy They needed, you know, three times a week or more or closer contact with a psychiatrist, all that different kind of stuff. So yeah, um, yeah, maybe those type of things. So it's definitely, definitely helpful. Mm-hmm. And the clinic where I'm doing one of my internships as does have um, what's called a custom IOP program where we don't provide medication services, but we can customize an IOP program. So the two to three hours of three days a week kind of thing, we can kind of figure out, okay, what's the, how are we going to separate it from the group versus independent individual therapy? Maybe we also do some more so my clinic does a lot of like holistic uh based services so Mm -hmm. they do yoga and you know other kind of uh, eastern type services as well in addition to the western based therapy so some clients can benefit from having maybe like two hours of the day is eastern type yoga things meditation services whatever and then they'll have individual therapy and then our groups that we do are three hour groups so that would be one day a week, they would come in for a group mm-hmm. for three hours and they would kind of do a full like intensive group. So yeah, this is, this is IOP, intensive outpatient programming. As you will note in all of these programs, the clients are living in the community. 
these are the type of programs that insurances will generally prefer to pay for because the clients are living independently. The clients are living in the community. This is what a lot of uh, state and local governments prefer to fund is community-based services because there's unfortunately still a lot of like negative perception about inpatient, which we'll get to. They, you know, there's a lot of push for clients to live in the community to whatever degree they're able to. And that's why they can maybe they'll go see the, the therapist once a week or they'll go three days a week or whatever. So then we get into something a little bit different, which is called medically monitored non-residential services. So it's just another step up from where we are. Again, the clients are living in the community, but they're living in supportive environments. So like a sober living that has a house manager that lives there, or they're living in a group home where there's some kind of support on site for them, just for their daily life, or they live in like a board and care type home where there is someone there, like maybe not a nurse, but like some kind of staff that monitors them during the during the evening time, but they still go to the clinic for their clinical services. And these are typically described as partial hospitalization programs or assertive community treatment programs. So they would be basically at, this would be kind of more similar to that day center that you were talking mm-hmm. about. They come here, you know, to the clinic most days of the week, typically five days a week, Monday through Friday, mm-hmm. yep. uh, for a full working day, kind of like eight hours, maybe five hours, depending on the program. Psychiatric services could be available via remote communication, 24 hours as needed. And nursing services are available at the day center. So during the 40 hours per week, kind of you go there from like nine to five kind of thing. They will provide you with medication on site. They will provide meals and they will arrange for transportation for you to get to the clinic. Mm -hmm. These will include more intensive individual family and group therapy services depending on the client needs. There will also be rehabilitative services or like occupational therapy to kind of help the clients learn how to live in the community so they can move down to the lower level cares that we had just discussed. Because that's the whole point, right? Yeah. Is, is to get you to the point where you can live on your own, not exactly. have to come to these programs. Yes, exactly. I do have a question for you. Yes, sure. I know in an undergrad, I volunteered at a community mental health center. Now, I didn't know a whole bunch of, of, of information about it, but they served lunch there and things like that. And I think there were people there that, that did kind of spend time there, but it was like voluntary. So uh-huh. like... I, I think that would be more on the lower end of care, right? It's, yeah. it's somewhere where you can just walk into the community center basically and be like, hey, you know, I need help today with X, Y, and Z. Yeah, yeah. So, mm-hmm. the, so the difference between that and all of and these kinds are these are structured mm-hmm. services, whereas that is not a very structured program. It's like, yes, we're open for you to come in. It's That follows a kind of, it's called like a clubhouse model or a treehouse model. Mm-hmm where it encourages the clients to come in for social support and you can hang out with other peers. You can take maybe, you know, uh, some classes on computer skills or classes on art, you know, or whatever. And if you need therapy services, there will be someone on site that you can talk to, but it's not like a structured program where you come in at this time, you have group and therapy scheduled out for you. There, a lot of times those kind of programs are, for homeless individuals, mm-hmm. people who, if they don't live in that kind of group home or boarding care, they would not have a place to go. And so they provide a lot of those kind of homeless assistance resources as well. There are a lot of those in California also. There was actually one like down the street from the hospital that I worked at. And so we would actually oftentimes like if we had a client that was discharging and they were homeless, we would like give them their information and say, hey, why don't you, on your way to wherever you're going, stop by there first. You can get some lunch and they might be able to get you housing or something else that we weren't able to get you in the short period of time that you were in the hospital. Mm-hmm. But if anything, you can at least just hang out there during the day. Right. Use a computer. You can have your mail forwarded there. Mm-hmm. Those kind of things. But yeah, those are um, kind of like a clubhouse model 
treehouse mm -hmm. model to a lesser degree. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, partial hospitalization programs are again, you know, they follow a hospital based structure of the programming. So you're, but you're only there five days a week. You don't live in the hospital. A lot of partial hospitalization programs are actually done at hospitals where they have like a separate wing for their yeah. outpatient services. But nowadays, actually, you're having a lot of PHP or assertive community treatment programs in a normal clinic that's in the community. But either way, the kind of the structure is very similar. You have eight hours per day, five days a week providing uh, milieu therapy. So you can have recreation time, watching TV, playing games, whatever. You'll have meals, you'll have medication, you'll have individual therapy, you'll have group therapy, you'll have recreation and occupational therapy. You'll have, you'll be able to see a medical doctor. Uh, sometimes you'll be able to see the psychiatrist or the psychiatric nurse practitioner, and you'll have nursing care provided throughout the day. Yeah, we have that here too. Yeah. We usually we use it as a step down mm -hmm. yes. from inpatient, kind of be like, okay. Uh, and it was, of course, again, most of my experiences with kids. So they would do school there. They would do the groups. They would do all that stuff, right? Yes, exactly. Exactly. But it was to kind of get them back into the routine of going back into mm -hmm. the community. It's, it's a, it is a step down program. And these kind of now the places that we're getting to this one and the next kind of stuff are step downs from hospital based services. So in this case, it's a step down for someone who can live in a maybe a supportive environment, but will still need the regular structure of mm -hmm. the, you know, programming. So they will go to the, you know, PHP or ACT program. And like, even with these ones, they might still have a member of their clinical team go to the house to check in with them on a regular basis uh, when they're not in programming. But um, those are kind of be like as needed kind of things. And there will be a lot of case management, social service clinicians um, will be, be able to provide additional financial support. So like helping people mm. get jobs, helping them go to school, job training, yeah. uh, all that kind of stuff. So like you were saying with children, they have these kind of programs for children so they can still do their schools and get their education in, in addition to their mental health needs. So it's a way to kind of provide everything that the person will need. And then uh, we have medically monitored residential services. So this is what most people will think about as a, like a residential rehab. So these are not hospitals. These are residential facilities. So they could be boarding care level or they can be like a house that provides all the services in, in house. Everything mm -hmm. is provided on site. The clients will have a place to live. They sleep there. They eat all their meals there. They have clinical cares available at all times. There will be a nurse, a psychiatric registered nurse or LVN available at least 24 hours daily, if not, you know, via remote. And you'll have the doctors come in every day. The therapists come in every day. Nursing care is provided. Medical care is provided. In addition to education, financial, rehabilitation services, everything is done on site. Yeah. So these are also done as a step down from a hospital, depending on the need of the client. So the difference between this one and the one previously is the, the level of programming is the same. You're getting the same type of clinical services, just you're living in the place where they provide the services versus you live in a sober living or group home or something like that. And then yeah, you get transported in during the day. This is where I started my my career in uh, in psychology. Actually, was it, as a direct care worker in an, um, in a residential. It was Villa Maria back then. Villa Maria doesn't exist anymore now. It's St. Vincent's Paul. But yeah, we had kids aged nine to fifteen. Mm -hmm. They were living in a unit. Everybody lived on the unit. Every morning, they'd come up with the medication cart and, you know, give yeah. everybody medication. Mm -hmm. We would feed them. We would take them down to do, like, gym and, yep, you know, yep. stuff like that. So uh, I loved that job. I did it for two years. And, um, and when you say you were a direct care staff, so you weren't, mm -hmm. like, a therapist specifically. You were just kind of someone who provides, you know, milieu-based support, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So that kind of 
type of support is is uh, found in this level of care as well as mm-hmm. in the previous level of care. So in the group home or sober mm-hmm. living that the person would live in, there would be someone like that who's not a clinician but is there to provide support. So they call them, you know, behavioral health techs or something yeah. like that. They're not yeah, we had... clinicians. Uh-huh. They are, you know, supportive yeah. staff. Yeah, I was studying my master's at the time so to get my master's in yeah. social work, but they they definitely needed the extra support, you know, not only and and I think most of them I think most of them were like wards of the state too. So, yeah. you know, there were some people that had had parents, but you know, they definitely lived in there and they were definitely had let's say more uh extreme reactions <laughs> and that's part of the reason why they needed to be in there yeah. i always tell my clients at the beginning of a session like or getting to know them like look i started off my my uh work in a direct care setting in a residence i've had chairs thrown at my head i've been spit on <laughs> called every name in the book like you cannot throw anything at me that hasn't already been thrown at me <laughs> yeah so, yeah exactly so these places need a little bit more behavioral support as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you will find a lot of these kind of level of care for children. Um, mm-hmm. You also will have these this kind of level of care for addiction and dual diagnosis, eating mm-hmm. disorders, you know, places where they need that kind of support and structure in the house. But here's the difference between this and a, you know, in the next level, which is more or less hospital. This is mm-hmm. not locked. This level that we just talked about, the residential, it's not locked. If the client wanted to, they can just walk out and there's nothing you can do about it. The same with the kids. It was so bad. (laughs) And, you know, the way to kind of keep them in, especially if they were not engaging in the program is, you know, you let them know, okay, fine. You want to leave. That's your choice. But, you know, your family is not going to pick you up. We, you know, and and you will not have food. You will not have a bed, you know. Like it's your choice. You have freedom to choose, but there are consequences to your choices and you need to understand (laughs) that. Um, I worked briefly in a, in a, this kind of level of care um, when I was doing my practicum for my doctorate program earlier Mm -hmm. this year, I did, I was just there for four months, but it was this level of care. The clients lived there. Uh, Mm -hmm. There was direct uh, care staff who was there. You know, there was a nurse who was there on site 24, 24, seven, and then the doctors and the therapists would come in every day to kind of provide the the services yeah. and everything like that. And, you know, we had uh, this client who they just wanted to walk out a couple of times. They, they would just leave. And, you know, we can't keep an eye on everyone at all times. You know, there's only so many staff during the day. Uh, on the weekend, there's typically less staff because weekends are weekends. And That's what I was, that, weekend staff. Yeah, and that was me. I was the weekend person. There wasn't a lot of clients in this house. There was only six clients maximum. And so, you know, sometimes they would just stay in their rooms on the weekend or they would be in the living room or in the kitchen or in the backyard or whatever. And then the, this one client, like I would notice, okay, where did they go? Like I just saw them and they will have just wandered off and not because they were like, confused or anything. They just didn't want to, to be there. And so he would leave and yeah, we had to actually because ours were kids. We had to like keep them in eyesight if they yeah. if they said they wanted to leave. We were like, okay, you know, we can get that process going. Yeah, exactly. Here. Exactly. We need to be and able the, to see you. And and what I would do oftentimes with the clients is because like you know during the week when they had a lot more services being offered, they would go on trips and everything, day trips and everything. These kids would go to a school non-public. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, but on the weekend, they didn't have the staff to do those kind of trips because not all the clients wanted to go. So I would like be like, okay, here, I'll just go out with you guys. You know, we'll take a walk to the park that's nearby. So I, you know, when I would come in on Saturday or Sunday, I would say, okay, who wants to go to the park? And then whoever wanted to go to the park would go with me. And then the other staff would stay with whoever stayed behind. Then we could just do it that way. That way they can at least get out of the house you know, for as long as they needed to, as long as they wanted to, depending on when medication needed to be given and meals and whatnot. Uh, sometimes we would pack a lunch. We'd do a, we'd do like a picnic and everything like that. I try to make it fun for them. Exactly. So, you know, as much as you can. Yeah. So that's this, you know, medically monitored residential services. So the next level of care, the highest 
uh, of this kind of rating is medically managed residential services. This is basically a hospital, but it might not be like a part of a general hospital, freestanding kind of hospital. So the main difference between this one and the next one is here, again, people are living there, but it's maybe not as nice as uh, the previous one. It's not a nice house in the community. This is a Uh, hospital. This is, um, or it could be in a freestanding non-hospital setting, but it's still locked. This is a secure facility. A, you know, it is a locked unit and clinical services are available 24 hours a day. Um, So that means psychiatric, nursing, medical services are available on site or, you know, in close enough proximity to provide rapid response at all times. Psychiatric and medical contact will be made on a daily basis. You're seeing a medical doctor and a psychiatrist and a nurse every day, multiple times a day. This is basically a hospital. This is where I worked in. I This is where I did five years of my career is in this kind of level of care. Um, this is the highest level of care. Actually, technically there is higher, but it all kind of falls under this, yeah. this category. But these are for acute services and crisis stabilization needs. Um, right. So clients will not typically stay in this level of care, hopefully for too long. So this is where a lot of differences between the states will come into play is every state has different laws that dictate uh, how long a person can be held in a secure, locked environment against their will for. In California, uh, it ranges at the low end of 72 hours. And depending on the different legal uh, holds uh, that are placed on the client, could go up to a year. But it's most often the average is... In this kind of setting, the average would be maybe like uh, three to five days, maybe two weeks. Yeah, uh, yeah. For stabilization, and then they would be moved to the lower, the next level of care down. Mm-hmm. However, you know, depending on different legal criteria and depending on the level of need, they might go from an acute level, which is the general psychiatric hospital is acute, to what's called subacute services. So it's still technically a hospital. It is still locked, but they're they're not as acute. They're not as in extreme emergent need, but they're also not anywhere near ready to be at the next level of care down. So this is kind of like the in between half a le- yeah. It's like an in between, and I also worked in this kind of setting as well. Um, so I worked in both in acute and subacute settings. Subacute services, so in California, you're in a subacute on a conservatorship. Your legal right to choose your care has been taken away from you. Uh, these are adults and given to a conservator. It could be a family member or a public guardian who is making the decision to, to give consent for your treatment in your stead because you are not psychiatrically capable of making that decision. And there's a lot of legal oversight in these kind of settings. Uh, yeah, their clients is, yeah. have the right to a hearing to to see if they can get out of the hospital, um, whether or not they can regain their rights to give consent and all that jazz. And these kind of uh, environments, you know, you will have a psychiatrist, you'll have psychologists, you'll have nurses, you'll have social workers, you'll have occupational recreation therapists, all those kind of things are provided, you know, every day of the week. Now, this is like, okay, as an outside therapist, if I have a client who's suicidal, has a plan, has intent. This is what you They go to the ER, they get evaluated, and the ER sends them to where you're talking about right now. Yes, yes. So this is considered the highest level, yeah. Yeah, as far as like the, the, I don't know the dates and ranges, like how many days you stay there. I think it's until you're not, like a lot of the times it's until you're not a danger Mm -hmm. to yourself or others. Yeah. But I know also insurance has Insurance a does have a thing to do with it. And that effect, can be really problematic for some cases in which the client needs the level of care. Mm-hmm. And, and this is where the kind of criteria is really dip, difficult because in these kinds of settings, again, hospital settings, there's a lot of legal oversight. So, uh, our society does not like the idea of locking people up in psychiatric hospitals, you know, there's a lot mm-hmm. of stigma against that because of the asylums of olden days. 
Yeah. But unfortunately, understandable. Yeah, understandable. <laughs> Those were not well run. They were no. not managed very properly. They were not humane. That's not the case in mo- in mm-hmm. most cases nowadays. Not, these hospitals are very humane. They are you know very well run, very very mm-hmm. competently run, a very supportive environment. But you have to understand the need of the client, and right. in order to be admitted to this level of care, the client needs to be danger to self, danger to others, or gravely disabled. Gravely mm-hmm. disabled means that due to a mental illness, they're not capable of providing for their own uh, self-care at this time. They're not able to provide for food, clothing, or shelter. They're not able to handle their activities of daily living. Mm-hmm. They cannot understand their own medical needs even. you know, Depending on states, those are different inclusions of that criteria. But more mm-hmm. often than not, the people coming in are danger to self or danger to others. And here's a real problem, and I'm, I might get into some politics, but I'm trying not to be political, but sometimes... It's the truth. It is I the was truth. going to if you were going yeah. to. So. <laughs> yeah. Here, here's the truth of the matter. Um, insurances don't like to pay for these. You're absolutely right. Okay. People don't like to have their family members come here, but unfortunately, there are clients that are not able to live successfully in the community due to the severity of their mental illness. Those are the kind of clients that I've worked with the most. Granted, some of those clients that I've worked with were able to move down to different to the lower levels of care. But unfortunately, you will have clients that are so chronically mentally ill, so severely, dis, you know, cognitively and psychiatrically disabled that they can't be successful yeah. in a lower level of care. And they need this kind of environment because they are at risk of hurting themselves or other people, or they just can't, they can't even bathe themselves. I I can't tell you how many times that in the hospital we've had to have like clients that just could not or would not bathe themselves. And the nurses had to basically get a doctor's order to force them into the shower and bathe them. Because obviously that can be really bad for your medical health. If you're not showering, if you're not bathing, you get really dirty, you can get sick and you can get infected. These clients can't comprehend that. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's the thing is, is like, while, you know, you don't want people to have to live in the highest level of care, right? Like you said, like you, the whole point is to try and, and move down. Yes. The whole point is to move down. Right. But some people cannot. And unfortunately, at least I know here in Maryland, most of the long-term hospitals or, or care centers for that have been closed down. Yeah, And so there's no place. And so what happens is you have these people coming in and out of the ER mm-hmm. over and over and over again, and just heading right back out into the community with no support because they, they just, they either don't want to go to wherever they need to go or whatever. Right. And, and this is a very important thing to note. Um, you know, in most cases, us as therapists, you know, dealing on the outside of hospitals, we're not going to see these kind of clients. Yeah. You know, you don't see these kind of psychiatrically st- uh, unstable clients in your you know private practice. But here's the thing: is, as you said, they don't want to go to the clinic, or they don't want to do whatever. Or there's no room. Or they don't have the insight. So yeah. with severe mental illness like schizophrenia, which we will talk about in a later episode, there's something mm-hmm. called anosognosia, which yep. basically means a lack of insight. The person does not believe that they are sick. Mm-hmm. That is a type of delusion in a, in a manner of speaking that they are so 100% sure that they are fine and mm-hmm. they don't see the need to take medication, to bathe themselves, to do whatever. They just have no insight and they just are lost in their, in their illness. And it is, as you said, a lot of the long-term hospitals have been closed out. There, there used to be plenty of long-term care facilities yep. for people with serious mental illnesses that they were able to get the treatment that they needed in a safe environment. Those have been closed down a lot. Um, and you get, not only do you get a lot of people going in and out of ERs, you get a lot of these seriously mentally ill people going to jail. Uh, because yep. they're That's homeless. The they're doing things that are, you know, not good for society. They get arrested. And it is a very unfortunate truth that currently in the United States, Jails and prisons are the um, the number one health center. It really is. It's so bad. That is the place where, where most 
that that's not right. Like these people should yeah. be in a hospital or in other level of care if can be done, but there's just no beds available. There's no space. There's no yeah. facilities available. And just to give people some history on that, right, too, yeah. is is that I think I think it was back during like FDR time. They when they like in the sixties when they came up with um the institutionalization. A medication. Yeah, yeah, the deinstitutionalization where they came up with a medication. What was the medication? Thorazine. Thorazine, yep. Which is a sedative, which is <laughs> not necessarily the best medication, antipsychotic. But they they were like, okay, everybody's fine and dandy now. We'll just send them out with Thorazine and, and they'll be fine. So now we can close down all these places mm-hmm. and take away the funding. Yeah. Um, and, well, and now we're finding out that that was a mistake. Yeah. So a little bit more to that was it's not just that they had this uh, new, what was considered mm-hmm. a miracle drug because... Thorazine was a very effective antipsychotic for, Mm. you know, serious cases of schizophrenia and other psychosis. So they had this development of a new of a new uh, drug that was like, wow, this is really good. It's able to, you know, completely get rid of their symptoms. So Mm -hmm. if they can take them, then they can live in the community. So what a lot of the funding was done was instead of funding the long term hospitals and long term care institutes. Um, their funding was given by the government to community-based mental health centers where they were um, believed that you can live in the community and you just go to this clinic and get your medication on a you know regular basis and you'll be good. And unfortunately... Funding got cut for them too. <laughs> funding got cut for that too. So it's like really what was like you thought this was going to... Like if they would have kept the funding up for that, it might have been okay. Yeah. But uh, it, you know, it didn't say it on. So it was not uh, FDR. It was Kennedy. Kennedy. I was um, going to say Kennedy or FDR. Yeah. So right. Kennedy was the one who signed what is called the Community Mental Health Act. Um, and that basically gave all the funding for these community mental health centers. And the reason for this was, you know, Kennedy's sister had basically gone to a asylum type setting and she was very seriously mentally ill and at that time there was no medication that could help they lobotomized her um mm. and so kennedy was like well which is not something we do anymore no by we the way. do not lobotomize people anymore it is <laughs> not like, done we don't do it I put that out there. <laughs> but when the drug psychiatric drugs started coming out and kennedy saw the like the promise of this he thought, okay, no one else will have to go through what my sister went through. Mm-hmm. You know, the intention was good. It was. It just, the implementation was not good. If people want to know more about deinstitutionalization, it's a tongue twister of a word, there you can, you know, read about it online. I would recommend people uh, look up the Treatment Advocacy Center. It is a nonprofit they're not sponsoring us. No sponsors. Nope. <laughs> but they uh, advocate for improving the laws and decreasing these barriers to getting people the kind of care that they need. And here's actually a different kind of level of care that I'm going to talk about that's not mentioned on my little list here is something called assisted outpatient treatment. So most people going to a hospital are on a civil commitment. They are you know, court ordered to go to the hospital and they're inpatient in the hospital. However, you know, because there's a lot of push for um, clients to live in the community, if possible, but you also have these clients that are not able to make that decision on their own. And so there are now, in a lot of states, there are programs called assisted outpatient treatment. In New York, it's called Kendra's Law. In California, it's called Laura's Law. Different states have different names for it. But basically, uh, instead of going to the hospital. So someone who might normally have been sent to a hospital or to jail because of their mental illness can be given a court order for outpatient community-based services in one of the different levels that we talked about. And they would have a lot more supervision um, to kind of make sure that they're going to the clinic. So most often it would be an IOP or PHP or sort of community treatment kind of program. So the three to five day program, and they would live in a board and care or other group home sober living that has support available. So someone living on site that can 
provide them with support, help them take their medication, that kind of stuff. Um, and sometimes you might have people that can live at home with family. If the family is able to take on that, you know, task of helping them and making, and then you would have case managers and social workers and therapists come to the house in addition to their therapy program to make sure that they're taking the medications to get them the, you know, education needs, financial needs, workplace training, all that kind of stuff. So that way, when they graduate mm -hmm. from this program, when they're no longer needing to be committed to it, that they were able to do it on their own, they can graduate from the program, they can go to a lower level of care, they can go into the community, they can go to school, they can get a job. You know, that is something that is really tough for people with this kind of serious mental illness. But these programs have been found to be very effective. And it's really good because yeah. now, while there's not a lot of funding going for inpatient services, which is... I still maintain mm -hmm. needs to be a lot more because unfortunately you do have people that need that. Mm -hmm. There's a lot more funding going to community-based services, PHP, ACT, uh, IOP programs, yeah. residential programs. There's a lot more funding going to those kind of services. So people can at least get more help in the community and in a more comfortable environment than they would have done, yeah. you know, on the street or in jail. Um, so I okay. have another question, Benjamin. I have another answer. I have, <laughs> I have another all the answer, questions. So how do I, if I say I'm just a person in the community or a family member or something like that, how do I figure this stuff out? How do I access these different levels of care or or how to figure out these different, different this, levels this, of this care? I know it's a hard question. Word jumbles. Um, <laughs> So this is unfortunately the problem. So this is different in every state. Um, and in mm -hmm. most cases, you can't get into this ladder without starting at the top of the highest level. And then they will move you down, um, which is not good because basically that requires mm -mm. a person to be dangerous to get help. It's, it, in yeah. fact, it's legally mandating in order to get into a hospital you need to be literally trying to kill yourself or someone else in that moment. Correct. Legally mandated danger is not a good idea. You know, if they need that level of care and they have a history of danger or dangerous behaviors, get them in before they become dangerous. Like, why is that not done? I don't know. Um, however, because there's a lot more residential and community-based services being provided now, a lot of these different like clinics and therapist offices and residential services communicate with each other. And so they do. Yep. And nowadays insurances will cover the residential programs a lot more. Mm -hmm. So let's will, say yeah. you're a, you know, private practice individual therapist and you have a client that, or you have a family member that is coming to you saying that they, they think that they need more help than just the once a week that, uh, that you can provide. So nowadays, a lot of um, therapists can make a referral to the next level care up. So again, we're instead of starting from the top down, now we can start from the bottom up. And then, you know, you can have, let's say, um, first of all, check with the insurance, which, uh, what will the insurance cover? <laughs> Unfortunately, insurance dictates a lot of your yes, uh, in... mental health care. Not necessarily no, something we no. enjoy but <laughs> at all. That would be kind of like how we had that episode about how to find a therapist. That therapist would now have to go through that same process to find a, you know, community-based like IOP or, you know, non-residential service. So, yeah, you would go online, you would search for it. So the clinic that I work at, you know, it's a clinic, but we have individual therapists that do normal level of therapy, the very, very, very bottom. But then we also provide like, you know, IOP. So like if the client needs mm -hmm. more, then we can do more. And then we have connections like the director of my clinic. He knows all the residential programs in the county or at least in our area. Mm -hmm. And so if we have a client that needs more, he can be like, okay, hold on here. Contact these people first. I know them. Uh, we refer patients to them in the past. It's business, you know, and they will then oftentimes the residential places will refer to you saying, Hey, we have somebody that's able to move down from our level of care to just having normal once week therapy. Do you have any openings? And that way you already have some kind of connection, but 
it is a bit of a maze to find the right level of care. It, it is. does require a lot of like back and forth. And that is a very unfortunate thing about the mental health care system in the United States. Yeah. And I, I too, just as a, as a side note, uh, for anybody who starts off at the lower level, right? Like if you're on the higher level, a lot of the times you'll get, some of the times you'll get these options presented to you. Hopefully if you're listening to our podcast now, you know what the options are for you. So you can yeah. ask for those different uh, types of services. But um, if you're seeing an outpatient just in a therapy office, some of those people don't have those connections and they don't realize what the next level of care is, what a, an, an intensive impact outpatient is and things like that. So you may have to even <laughs> educate yeah. your own therapist on, hey, look, you know, I know these services are out there. Can you help me find them? Because your therapist is more likely to have mm -hmm. networking connections with psychiatrists and directors and, and things like that, right? So they're going to have to write a referral or a letter to the, the next level up dictating, okay, this is what we've been doing. This is my level that I've been at, but they need more. This is what they need. Um, this is what they're struggling with. This is their mm -hmm. history. These are their, you know, positive supportive factors. These are their risk factors, that kind of stuff. And so, yes, you know, educate your therapist to say, hey, I feel like I need more. And they will probably be like, yes, you do. And, they, and then you can say, okay, well, I went on to Google and I found these kind of places. Can you help me call them uh, and find out, you know, what they need for a referral? And then can you like help me do that? And the therapist, if they're a good therapist, if they're not, you know, a red flag therapist, you shouldn't be saying. If they're a good, well-trained, compassionate person, they'd be like, yes, let's get you this help. Right, exactly. So again, you know, just like any other doctor, advocate for yourself. If you feel like you need more, advocate, mm -hmm. advocate, advocate. Um, do your research. Look online, do research, whatever questions. you need to do. And that's, again, that's why we want you mm -hmm. all to ask us questions, right? Because we can answer them so that you can go back and say, hey, look, you know, I know this resource is out there. Uh, yeah. Can you help me find it, you know, um, to any doctor or, you know, psychiatrist and, or and, therapist? You know, they nowadays, unfortunately, like I said, most people start off at the higher level, if, you know, if they're in most need. They do. I don't think that's always the best case for everybody because those are typically the most seriously mentally ill, in which case they need that level of care. Mm -hmm. But someone who I'm assuming listening to our podcast is, I would assume is more able to live in the community. And so I would recommend if you have a family member or friend that you feel is struggling and you're concerned and you live in, you know, California or Maryland, reach out to us. And, you know, we can explain how to find this stuff. You know, we can help you. We cannot give clinical direction. We can just be like, here, Correct. you know, look up this type of program. Yeah. Here's a list. You know, we, that's what yeah. we can do. <laughs> we cannot provide any referrals. We're not your therapist or anything like that. No. <laughs> you cannot cite us as like, hey, he said I need this and so I need it. It's like, no, I'm not providing any diagnosis. No, we're just... And information resource, you know, right? look online and look for, you know, custom IOP programs, partial hospitalization programs, IOP programs, residential programs. Nowadays, insurances are covering those a lot more. And again, remember, IOP is intensive outpatient. PHP is partial hospitalization program. And ACT is assertive community right. treatment. Yeah, as as therapists, we always use the the acronyms because it's just way easier to use it. But I was like, oh wait a minute, let's if you make forget sure what the acronyms are. You can message us; we'll tell you. Actually, yeah. so you know, <laughs> most insurances are covering uh, IOP programs a lot more. Uh, private insurances, typically, unfortunately, Medicaid does not provide a lot of coverage for this. But there are some programs that do take Medicaid. Um, it just might be a little bit more difficult to find, but they are out there. It just might take a little bit more sleuthing around. Yeah. I really encourage anybody to kind of seek out what they feel that they need. Ask questions, ask questions. And I, I if, if you're not comfortable talking to us or you're in a different state, um, you can always contact your department of mm -hmm. mental health and hygiene 
um, that's in your state, they should have, you know, a referral resource list or, you know, whatever available on their website. If they don't have anything available on yeah. the website, call them and, and ask, because that's what they're there for. They're there to help people gain access to these services. Um, so don't hesitate. That's, that's the their job of healthcare services, mental health and hygiene, different states call it different things, behavioral health, like, you know, but in Maryland, a really, really good resource is actually, um, in Anne Arundel County, but I think they have some stuff for outside of Anne Arundel County. It's called Anne Arundel County mental health agency. Um, and if you just Google that they have resources all over there, hotlines, they have a warm line that you can call. And I always tell people too, in Maryland, if you feel like you are a family member, you don't know whether you should go to the hospital or not, call that phone number. They will talk you through it. And if um, they feel like they may need to come out to assess you in person, they will come out in person to assess you and help you get to the hospital if you need to. So um, there are plenty of resources, at least again in Maryland. But you know, check check your um, mental health and hygiene. You know, state websites. Um, another and resource, like that. depending on state, is NAMI, National Alliance on Mental Illness, and Mental Health America. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Those are national nonprofits dedicated to like mental health education and and awareness. And so they have chapters in different states, and then you can contact that chapter. And then they can direct you further. Um, there are also um, crisis stabilization teams um, that we uh, crisis assessment teams, whatever they're called in your area. That you know you can call them and they can come out to assess you and they'll let you know, hey, okay, you don't need a hospital, but you do need this, and then they can give you that resource. Um, those are typically county right. level um, programs, and they might oftentimes depending on the county, work closely with your police uh, because they try to kind of make sure that police aren't getting involved where they don't need to be involved. Yeah. They don't want, you know, any more shootings. Well, the, the, yeah, the cool part about our program, and I think it's one of the, again, it, it's the best one that I've heard about in the U.S., to be honest, but they have plain clothes officers with the, um, the social workers that will come out with you and they're specifically trained to deal with mm -hmm. mental health That's crises. Really yeah. So I know on the news, like you see a lot of, of police officers don't really necessarily have the training to deal with mental health crises. Check in your county to see if they have one of these, these resources because they're amazing. The, the police officers know, mm -hmm. you know how to deescalate, how, how to deal with a mental health situation, how to recognize it. You know, and then they're supported by two social workers right behind them. So if you could find one of those resources, use those. Nowadays, those kind of training programs for police and social workers are becoming far more prevalent after all the recent, you know, issues yeah. that we've had in the country. Um, a lot of counties uh, nationwide have been providing funding for police to get trained in mental health mm -hmm. issues and de-escalation. De check out NAMI, check out your local county mental health agency, the police, if they have this kind of program, Google, mm -hmm. Google, <laughs> just Google. Just Google. <laughs> I mean, that as a verb, you know, to just Google everything in life. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Do your research. You can find it. But again, if we can help you in any yes. way, we're, and we're on here. That note, I think this is a good place. And this was a longer episode than usual because we had a lot more information to discuss, but please. Good information, though. Join us next time when we actually talk about insurance. Yay! Yay! We're hoping to have um, a guest on for this one. Uh, we still have to confirm confirm that date and time yet, though, for our recording. But we are going to be going over insurance so that if you listen to any one of our episodes, yes, listen to that one. <laughs> That will help you immensely navigate the mental health system. We're talking about higher levels of care, what type you can get, where are the services, you know, all that stuff. Unfortunately, insurance dictates mm -hmm. a lot of that. So I'm very excited about that. Um, so that's what's going to happen next time. Um, you can find us individually also online. I met Nat20Therapy on both Twitter and Facebook. 
And where can they find you, Benjamin? You can find me through my other podcast, which has not had as many episodes out as this one. I'm, you know, still working on that. But it is My Hero Therapy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And there we talk about learning how to be a hero in real life from the uh, My Hero Academia anime. So good. Uh, so yes. have you seen the movie yet? Oh, my God. I haven't seen it. Yet. <laughs> I have issues, but you know, no spoilers on this not on this podcast. We don't spoil anything here, except for mental health resources. Yes, yes. So join us next time on Mental Health Quest, the therapist's office and beyond. Bye, everybody. Bye. Please take care of yourselves and make today amazing. Mm-hmm.